Uh, Let's pray together as we um, gather around God's word. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful uh, that we can wait for you, that we can hope in you with hearts that know good things are coming, that know your word will feed us time and again. All we have to do is come with open arms, ready to receive the good things from your word. And I pray that you would use me as an instrument to channel the message you have for these dear, beloved people this morning. pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, One of my favorite books to give to graduating seniors or to blackmail them into buying themselves is called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, it's, Its subtitle is particularly enjoyable to me. Uh, it, it goes like this. How to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. Uh, as you may have been able to tell, this book is about finding God's will for your life. That ever-elusive question that is always asked. Um, in this book, DeYoung records this very memorable account from his college days. Um, and he shares this experience one of his roommates had with romance. And I'll read it for you. It says this, I'll never forget my poor beleaguered roommate talking with me after he took a risk and told a nice young lady that he liked her. He went on a long walk. He was pretty sure she would reciprocate his declaration of affection. But it turned out she wasn't interested. She was a sweet girl, a good Christian. She, she didn't mean to have bad theology. But instead of saying, I'm not interested, or I don't like you, or quit stalking me, or something... She went all spiritual on him. You know, I've been praying a lot about you, she demurred. And the Holy Spirit told me no. No, my confused roommate asked. No, never, she replied. (laughs) He goes on, poor guy. He got rejected. And not only by this sweet girl, but by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) The third person of the Trinity took a break from pointing people to Jesus to tell this girl not to date my roommate. I didn't know that was in the Holy Spirit's job description. But I bet at any Christian school there are scores of men and women blaming God for their breakups. Close quote. Uh, I believe this reflects uh, perennial confusion um, in our day about uh, living under a big and sovereign God or, or, or just answering this question, oh, what do I do when God's not telling me what to do? Oh, what do I do if I'm making a decision that's going to impact the rest of my life? How do I make this decision? Decisions are risky. The original definition of decision was cutting off something. Every time I decide something, I am cutting off all these escape routes and options. 
what if I don't like that job? What if I don't like that career? What if I don't like that city? What if I don't like that neighborhood? What if I don't like that boy or that girl? Or you could say, well, what if, what if I talk to that person and that person rejects Jesus? What if my wife and I have children who reject Jesus? What if, what if this church plan or this outreach program doesn't work? What if this capital campaign fails? I don't like making decisions. I don't like going in a direction. It's scary. No one wants to fail. Why can't God just speak and tell me who to talk to, who to date, and what to do? This is, this is one of the reasons I really love uh, the Old Testament in particular, the narratives of the Old Testament. I think they are very instructive in all of us. this. They, they show us how we can live pleasing lives under a big and a sovereign God. And they also give us plenty of examples how not to live under a big and sovereign guy, God. Uh, we, we encounter in these precious pages friends, all these precious friends and examples. Uh, they, they don't always get it right, but when they do, it's because they're living almost to the hilt of what they believe to be God's will. And as I read my Bible, I always get this chill of excitement in the brave company that I share with other people from centuries ago who also lived under a big and sovereign God. Now, there, there are many examples that we could turn to to look at. I mean, Daniel... And his friends stand out as great ones. Um, I do love the example of Paul and the New Testament church. I mean, think about it. Here they had the prophetic gift. Here they had Paul himself, who literally God used to write Scripture. And what do they do? How do they make decisions? They have elder meetings. They, 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 they talk back and forth, they, they plan, they strategize, and they prayerfully go forward hoping. Uh, our passage this morning isn't nearly as exciting as that, perhaps, or as well known, maybe. It, it might not be the greatest example, but it is sweet in my mind, and, and that is why I, I chose it. Uh, but before we turn there, let me, let me just say one thing. I have never, ever in my life been so excited about the end of a message before. I don't think I've ever said that before. I've never been so excited about the end of this message. And, and it's not because I want to get done so much, but it's, it's because the end of our message is what I'm anxious for you to hear. I can't wait for you to hear the answer to this question. How do I live if I believe in a big and sovereign God. How do I live today if I believe in a big, important, and sovereign God? Uh, let me ask you to turn to 1 Samuel 14. 1 Samuel 14. This is really a chapter that is a, a tale of two halves, so to speak. It, it tells of one day of, of battle. It tells about the first half of this day, about a victory caused by Yahweh and brought through one man. And in the latter half of this chapter, it tells about the rest of the day 
um, and the diminished triumph that is thanks in part to a fearful and superstitious king. And, and today, to just set the whole passage before you, I want to read it in its entirety, or, or half of it at least. Uh, and for the, and, and just, just so you know, I'm going to start a little bit before 1 Samuel 14. I'm going to start in 1 Samuel 13, verse 15, to help you kind of get a feel for the situation. In the context. So let's, let's turn now to God's word and read 1 Samuel 13, verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The, the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with him Uh, them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash, and the raiders came out from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One turned towards Ophrah, the land of Shul, and another company turned towards Beth Horon, and another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But but every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshare, their madoc, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the madoc, and and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side, and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come down to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be a sign to us. Uh, and so both, both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. 
And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a great panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, and the garrison, and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold... The multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went out at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So so Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle, and behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been uh, with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the, pa- the battle passed beyond Bethaven. Now, as I started to say, This chapter is really just one big contrast. It's a contrast between two men. And to examine this contrast, I I want to propose to you just a series of contrasts that you should draw between Jonathan and between Saul. But but before we do that, let me briefly just uh, help you set the stage of your mind a little bit so you understand a little bit of the background. Uh, Both of these men... uh, had a few similarities as well. For example, uh, both of the men, both Saul and Jonathan, had lost something significant. Uh, Probably as you were turning to 1 Samuel 14, you noticed something astute. And that is that 1 Samuel 14 comes before 1 Samuel 15. And it comes after 1 Samuel 13. And and then I'm not really trying to joke as much as I'm actually trying to say something serious. This is serious to good interpretation, noticing where it fits in the passage, because in both 1 Samuel 13 and in 1 Samuel 15, we see King Saul is rejected by God as king over Israel. And ironically, he gets in trouble in both places for, as Kevin DeYoung would say, just doing something. And probably, you may be familiar, in 1 Samuel 9, talks about the start of Saul's um, reign. Uh, Saul started out with all sorts of promise, of course. He had the right kind of name. He had the right kind of wallet. He had the right kind of looks. Uh, But this promising portrait that we see of Saul in 1 Samuel 9 is tarnished by cracks. He is also fearful. 
He is proud and he is prone towards superstition. We see this all, all the way up to the chapter that we are in. in. In chapter 14, both men have lost something significant and that something is a dynasty, a, 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 a throne. In, in chapter 13, Saul decided not to wait for Samuel but to go ahead with a sacrifice before a battle. And as, as a result, the dynasty was torn from him. As you see in 1 Samuel 13, 13, Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Both men have lost a dynasty, Jonathan and Saul. And we also see that both men are losing men rapidly. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 13, Saul had 2,000 men, and now he has 600, and they are facing a Philistine army that, as 1 Samuel 13.5 would tell you, are 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore, 600 seashore and both men also are similar in that both men are standing between victory at this moment they're standing between victory and defeat for israel and perhaps even the israelite nation i read uh, chapter 13 part of chapter 13 intentionally so that you could see these three raiding parties one it says in 17 is coming uh, out from the camp of the philistines and going north or to Ophrah. And one is going west to Beth Horon, and one is going east to Zeboim. And, and notice, nobody's going south. Well, that's because that's the land of Benjamin and the land of Judah, and that's because Saul and Jonathan are right there in between this army and this land. Matter of fact, in verse 14, we see that Saul is staying in the outskirts of Gibeah near some place called Migron, which means precipice. And by the way, um, in chapter uh, 13, 16, uh, says that this place, Geba, is a different location than Gibeah, just a little bit different, maybe. Uh, it seems to be on the outskirts of Gibeah. Uh, the precise geographical description of this area reveals actually a very well-known spot today. And in chapter 13, 23, you see it's called the Pass of Michmash. Um, this pass was the only way across a rocky and deep ravine. It's called today the Wadi Suenet. It's separating Michmash, where the Philistines were, from Geba, where Saul was. And there was this pass. And this pass was also well known because uh, on it were two towering peaks that kind of protected each side. As it says in 14.4, one was named Bozez, which means slippery or shiny, and the other is Sina, which means thorny. Basically, this was the only way the Philistines had to get into the land of Benjamin and Judah. And probably the reason why the armies are at a standstill now and looking at each other across the ravine is because this is a very great place to defend and the Philistine army can't just come across. So this is kind of, this pass is kind of like Saul's last card that he holds in his hand from utter destruction. 
So now we can look at uh, these three contrasts before us. Uh, these three contrasts that we have between Saul and Jonathan. And I'll just state them up front to be clear. We have a contrast of posture. We have a contrast of procedure. And we have a contrast of perspective. First off, what was the contrast of posture? Well, notice the words the writer uses to describe Saul and Jonathan, particularly their posture towards the battle. Verse 2 of chapter 14. Well, Saul is staying near Gibeah. Jonathan is going. Or you could say in verse 1, he says, let us go. In verse 6, he says, let us go. In verse 12, he says, come up after me. And notice, this isn't Jonathan's movement. Jonathan's going isn't a part of Saul's strategy because Saul, in verse 1, we are told, doesn't know he is going. And notice the contrast in posture is also marked by who Saul is waiting with. Verse 2 tells us Saul is staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, and the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. Now, at first, this, this may not make a lot of sense. This may be nothing in your mind, but if you're familiar with the book of 1 Samuel, you'll know that the author is particularly linking the priest with Eli, who was the rejected priest a few chapters back. So here's the picture that we have. The rejected king is hanging out with the rejected priest. I think this is mainly a picture of Saul's superstition, perhaps, but I think there's also a sub subtle picture here of what people just tend to do, right? When they don't like God's message, when they don't like God's messenger, they find for themselves other messages and other messengers who are a little bit nicer to be around and not as troubling, not as difficult. This high priest isn't going to give Saul a problem about breaking God's law. He's also rejected by God. He's not going to confront Saul on anything. Saul probably likes hanging around this guy. And meanwhile, we can see a little bit of a contrast in how Jonathan, instead of just hanging around with bad company, Jonathan is leading the people who are around him. He's encouraging them. He's reminding them of what the Lord can do. Uh, the basic posture here, in contrast, is Saul is waiting. He seems to be, to me, leaning away from action, leading away from conflict. He kind of isn't sure if he wants to go. Meanwhile, Jonathan is going, or he is leaning into the fight. He can't wait for it to start. Matter of fact, I would say one seems to be afraid that a fight is going to happen, and the other is afraid that a fight's not going to happen. Right? That's the contrast we see between Saul and Jonathan. Now, if you remember, if you have read there at all, in, in chapter 13, it's ironic to me that Saul is now doing what he didn't do then. He was supposed to wait in chapter 13. He didn't do it. And now he's waiting, and he's not supposed to be doing that either. He just, he just can't seem to get it right, right? In, in everything he does, he's just a little bit off. He keeps missing where he should be. As one commentary puts it, Paul seems to always be praying when he should be acting, and acting when he should be praying. Uh, also notice later on in the chapter when something does happen, Saul doesn't seem too prepared for it. 
leaning in, leaning out. There's a contrast there in posture. And secondly, we have a contrast in procedure. As I said, Jonathan seems to always almost be looking for a fight, and Saul seems to be almost scared of it. I mean, but, but let's look at Jonathan's strategy for a second here. Just gawk with me at verses 8 through 10. Uh, Jonathan says this, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come down to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. So they're expecting the Philistines to come down to them. And then verse 10, but if they say, come up to us, uh, then we will go up to them, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. Essentially, he's saying, hey, we're, we're fighting We're fighting these guys either way. If it's up there, if it's down there, we're going to fight them. I'm just not totally sure about where we're fighting them yet, but I'm pretty sure we're going to fight them today, and I just want to figure that out. So I'm going to just do this little test. That's basically what Jonathan says. Now, Scripture does warn us of the kind of man that seems bent on a tussle and loves to fight. It says in Proverbs 7, 9, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. Proverbs 19, 19, A man of great wrath will pay the penalty, for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again and again. And that's why in New Testament uh, writings we pick up this theme as well. James 1.20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then this is totally, anger is totally in contrast with, with new person realities, regenerated um, man interests and desires. Colossians 3, 7 through 8 says, in, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. So, so the man that loves a tussle isn't a good man. You don't want to be around that kind of man. But, but this is not what is happening in Jonathan, or with Jonathan. This isn't anger leading him into a fight. It's something else. In the, in the meantime, Saul is continually halted, it seems, halted and hindered by his religious show. He's got to keep stopping to make sure he's, uh, God's happy with him. He's never totally sure if God's on his side or not. In chapter 13, verse 11, we see that Saul's show of faith lasts only about as long as he thinks other people are pleased in him. I'm going to sacrifice something if it makes these people happy. Uh, I'm going to read for you chapter 15, verse 13, when Samuel Samuel once again comes to Saul And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Remember, this is is Saul's weakness. I I struggle with performing commandments. I have done it. I, I, I am convinced I've done God's will. This time, I'm sure of it. But as you read further on in the chapter, you, you see that he, 
He kind of doesn't really care about the details of God's will. God specifically told him to wipe out the complete nation of Amalek, and he doesn't do that. But hey, he's like, hey, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. My my heart's in the right place. Isn't that good enough? And then as we see in chapter 14 again, 14 verse 19, Saul puts up this show of seeking God's guidance, but then immediately abandons it. Why does he abandon it? Because he can hear that battle and he doesn't want to miss it, so he's got to go and fight. And then in chapter 14, 24, this is where the day turns from good to bad. It says this in verse 24, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So, Check out this strategy. Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Notice when the battle starts getting tough, when the people start growing faint, what does Saul do? He is halted and hindered constantly. He's like, I need to do a vow to impress God. Why would Saul make a vow to try to impress God, to win God's favor? That's what pagan kings do. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hurt myself. I'm going to sacrifice my son. I'm going to starve myself. Isn't this so impressive how much sacrifice I am putting in? Aren't you impressed? Won't you hear my prayer? Won't you come to my aid and help us? We are starving. That's what pagan Canaanites do. As a result, all of Saul's procedures seem to produce nothing but stumbling blocks and curses on those around him. I didn't read the rest of the chapter, but if you read it for yourself, you'll see by the end of the chapter, the hungry people are so desperate that they begin to eat meat with blood in it. They be, Saul puts them in a very difficult position, and they stumble. And Saul himself is on the brink of killing his own son, Jonathan, just to appease God. So Saul's religious show is constantly hindering him and hindering the people that are around him. Because Saul is off on something. Saul can't get something right. On the other hand, all Jonathan's procedures seem to inspire, encourage, motivate those around him, and he's rescuing. He's the instrument of the Lord to rescue and save his people. So, a final contrast, the contrast of perspective. Let's examine the internal perspective of both characters throughout this whole chapter. Uh, Both men have contrasting perspectives of the enemy. Maybe you notice, Jonathan refers to the Philistines as the uncircumcised ones, which is a biblical way of saying these are Yahweh's enemies. They are outside of the covenant and the community of faith, and they are Yahweh's enemies enemies they uh, and Saul in verse 24 refers to the Philistines as my enemies it's a very subtle difference but it is telling contrast of perspective and notice also both men have contrasting perspectives in their vision and their decision making Saul seems slow to grasp and ignorant of where God's working and what he should be doing. Jonathan, on the other hand, seems to know his God well, and he seems to have a finger on what God's next move is going to be and where he needs to be to do it. Matter of fact, later on in the chapter, there's this 
there's this moment that I believe kind of provides us an illustration. And it's, it's, a, it's an irony. That's why it's here. Well, well Jonathan unwittingly breaks his father's vow and eats some honey. His eyes actually become brighter than everybody's eyes around him. So we have this contrast between Saul and Jonathan. One man sees and another man is inwardly blind and bumbling because of it. And finally, both men have contrasting perspectives in what and who they fear. Well, one man is afraid, the other man fears. There's different fears going on here. In both 1 Samuel 13 and in 15, Saul acts and makes decisions for one reason, truly one reason and one reason only. I feared the people. Chapter 13, when he offers that unauthorized sacrifice ahead of Samuel, he does so because the people, it says, were scattering in verse 8 and 9 from him. And, and apparently he's concluding they're running away from me because they don't believe the favor of the Lord is with me. I've got to do something. I've got to sacrifice something. And so, what does he say in verse 11 of chapter 13 when Samuel asked what he's done? When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, point that out, underline that, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And in chapter 15, we see he disobeys the Lord's direct and just command to wipe out the Amalekites. Why? In verse 24, he tells you why. I have sinned, okay? That's in the Hebrew. I have sinned, for, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. But, but it was because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He is constantly making decisions and doing things based on what other people are going to think and say and respond to him. Now, now if you zoom out, you see these two chapters are, are bookending. Chapter 14. Chapter 14 is right in between, and I think in, in, in intentional intentional there's intentional purpose and plan between between the two fear of men failures is this portrait of jonathan that seems to have no fear of men no fear of his father no fear of philistines nothing he's a man every bit in contrast to his dad well what was the difference? Well, one man feared men. He, he feared loss of control. Saul feared position, losing and losing pride. I see Jonathan as fearing God. And even though his father's actions had led to, to his losing everything, including his dynasty and his future and everything, Jonathan, note this, seems so free, seems so liberated to do brave and daring things for God's glory. 
Now, perhaps the author wants you, wants you to answer the question, if I was in Jonathan's place, would I do what he did? I mean, do you want to be the person who can lose his throne, who can lose his future, and still be big in the purposes of God? Do you want to be someone who can lose out in this life if it means you get to gain glory for God? Or do you want to be someone who, when you lose out in things in this life, you become increasingly smaller, increasingly petty, increasingly self-absorbed, and you grow smaller and smaller and you drift farther and farther from what God is doing in this world. Who, who do you want to be? Now, let me just take a moment because I know there's lots of people in this room. Just let this soak into your heart and into your mind and into your soul. I know there are unbelievers in this room. I mean, maybe you've spent years in the church. You look a lot like a Christian. But you know that in your heart, in your heart, you are still refusing to bow the knee to Christ. Because why? You're bound by the fear of what it will do to you. What will they think of me if I get serious about God? Now, let me just tell you. Look at the contrast. Who do you want to be? You want to be Saul? You want to be Jonathan? And look at your idol. Look at these people. See your idol. Hate it as idolatry and run to the blood of Jesus. Run to the only freedom. Run to the only liberty you can find in this life and that is being right with God. Now maybe you also are just a, a believer who's troubled. I'm troubled by what people think of me. I, I am moved and motivated all the time by the fear of man. You know the right thing to do, but you shrink from doing it. The passage wants you to do the same thing. See your idol, hate your idol, and turn to the cleansing blood of Jesus and walk before Him free now just really quickly in case you don't know scripture has a lot to say about the fear of man and the fear of god proverbs twenty nine twenty five says it's a snare to your steps the fear of man lays a snare galatians 1 10 it's it's a rival slave status paul says for am i now seeking the approval of man or of god am i trying to please man if i were still trying to please man i would not be the servant of christ if you are serving men if you are fearing man you are not serving christ the fear of man will be your hindrance from walking in a way that is pleasing to god it will It'll be exposed by what you say to people and what you don't say to people. It'll be something that cripples you and, and feeds on your pride every day. It'll be something that keeps you from God and repentance. The fear of man in the Bible will be your undoing and your foolishness. See your idol. Hate your idol. Leave your idol. But, but what does the, the fear of God tell us? It, it says... 
in Scripture that blessing surrounds the fear of God. Psalm 128, verse 1, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. And in Proverbs 14, 26, it says that security comes with the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Psalm 125, 1-2 says, Those who trust in the Lord will be like Mount Zion that can never be moved and abide forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. And we also see about the fear of God that judgment comes to those who live without it. Ecclesiastes 12, 13-14 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And we also know from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is produces and brings wisdom into your life. The fear of the Lord, it says, is the beginning of knowledge, but fools. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's the fear of the Lord. Now, let's move to my favorite part. The reason I've been preaching to you this entire time is for now. So just forget all of that and just pretend like we're just starting all over again. Let's move to application. Jonathan gives us a refreshingly helpful vision of how to live a life under a big and a sovereign God. Will you have eyes to see it? I'm going to suggest three lessons, three lessons to learn from life, from a life that fears God. Number one, the fear of the Lord promotes boldness and daring venture. The fear of the Lord promotes boldness and daring venture. A venture is a risky or daring journey or undertaking. And the fear of the Lord promotes this, produces this, calls you to this. Jonathan provides an amazing example of a well-lived life under the sovereignty of God. He just keeps doing things. But notice, and, and this is important, he He doesn't do these things because his power is providing answers or solutions. He keeps boldly acting because he knows, like the David who will follow him in chapter 17 versus Goliath, the battle is the Lord's. And he can give you into my hands. And notice also, he he doesn't do this and do the things he does because he knows he's going to win. Notice the word, go back to chapter 14, verse 6, if you've moved from there. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It may be. What is this thought process? It, It might be. It might be. It might not be. Winning doesn't matter. To, to Jonathan. What matters is that he puts himself in the way of God's work and then 
watches him work through him. I'm just going to put myself in the way of God and see what happens. Winning doesn't matter. It may be. It may not be. Uh, This spirit reminds me of that other great passage in Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, where you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are about to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And it says in chapter 3, verse 15, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar is finishing his uh, very uh, wonderful speech about how horrible he is and how great and strong he is, he says this, But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, (laughs) I love this, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, or even if he doesn't, Be it known to you, O king, that we will still not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's not because they know what God's going to do. They're just obeying God's word. They're they're putting themselves in the way of God. They're doing what they're called to do, and they're just going to sit back, get some popcorn, and see what happens. We're putting ourselves in his way. What does it mean to put yourself in God's way? It is not living in defiance or ignorance of God's way, obviously. It is living in obedience to everything God has already revealed to you in his word. It is moving forward in bold confidence of faith in what God might do through you if you you put yourself out there, so to speak. For for example, you, you can go out and do daring ventures like knock on your neighbor's door. Get to know your neighbors. Start up a conversation at a coffee shop. If if you're a student, you can get a job where you know you're going to interact with some other people so you can talk to them. You could minister in an area of need here at church. You can develop relationships with someone that you know doesn't know Jesus just because, hey, I'm going to put myself in the way of God and see what He brings about. It may be, it may not be. You could come up to me and you could say, I love Jesus and I want to serve Jesus and I just want to help other young students love Jesus and love each other. Do you have a place for me in ministry? You could come up to anyone that is in charge of a ministry and say that and they would probably love to have you. And why do you say all of these things? Because God might just use these daring ventures to open up avenues for the gospel because God delights to use small people like you for big things. And obviously this means you don't do safe things. Safe people don't know God. Safe people wait for other people to come to them. Safe people really fear people more than God. So the fear of the Lord promotes boldness and daring venture. The fear of the Lord provides real world wisdom. The fear of the Lord provides real world wisdom. 
As I said, Saul seems to always be praying when he should be acting and acting when he should be praying. But I think the fear of the Lord balances your life in this way. It shows you when to pray and it shows you when to do. And sometimes it shows you you need to pray and do at the same time. The fear of the Lord, as the proverb says, is the beginning of wisdom. What do we see from Jonathan? We see, obviously, his eyes, once again, they were bright. He understood things. His actions and his strategies are perfectly timed. And we we get this sense that Jonathan is the only one who is thinking straight in this entire narrative. Now, some of you are probably thinking, and I can see it happening, David, are you sure that was a good move on Jonathan's part? Hey, you come down here, and we'll fight you. Or we'll wear ourselves out and climb up to you, and we'll fight you. Is that a good strategy? Is that a good move? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, yes. From, from a worldly perspective, I admit, Jonathan's idea is crazy and foolish and stupid, but I don't think we should approach this passage just in by itself. Uh, from a theological context, from a, a context of the book as a whole, Jonathan's move is wise and daring, and bold. And here we see, if you, if you turn back a ways in, in, in 1 Samuel, we'll see this. What, what is Jonathan's theological perspective? I, I, once again, I'm not telling you to take your local armor bear and go into a Mormon temple and try to refute them with the word. I am saying that the fear of the Lord will produce wisdom to live. Wisdom means Uh, Wisdom to live means you know how to act in every situation that pleases the Lord. I'm simply saying Jonathan knows how to act in a way that pleases God. He's not being foolish. Wisdom especially comes when you uh, don't have precise commandments from God, when you don't know the details of his plan, but you kind of know the direction God is setting for you. And I say Jonathan had wisdom to know what God wanted. Why? Because, get this, he knew God's word. He knew God's word. He knew what God said to Saul when Saul became king. And, and he interpreted that as what God said to me. To me, Saul's son. He, he didn't have a direct command from God to move against the Philistines in this way, but he had a memory of God's promise. Verse uh, chapter 9 of 1 Samuel and verse 16 promises this to Saul. Uh, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save, notice this, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And then in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, God confirms to Saul that he will be with him. In chapter 10, Verse 7, know when you see these signs meet you, do what your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. Samuel is saying, God has appointed my father Saul and expressly told him that he will have a mission in saving the people from the Philistines. Here is a situation where that promise can be relied on. I'm going to move boldly and daring and trust in God to do something. Because God has made his promise. And it's not stupidity. I think it's belief. It's belief. Do you have that kind of belief and that kind of wisdom in your life to boldly act on God's promises? 
Uh, wisdom first believes and obeys what God clearly reveals. And, and you'll notice when you obey what God clearly reveals in your life, all of those little gray areas will slowly clear themselves up. You will know what God wants you to do because you know what God wants you to do. So the fear of the Lord promotes boldness and daring venture. The fear of the Lord provides wisdom. And finally, the fear of the Lord produces this sweet thing that you want and I want, and it's called meekness. The fear of the Lord produces meekness. This is my favorite one. One of the most amazing things we see in Jonathan is this John the Baptist mentality that he has. You know, it's the, I'm here to serve. It doesn't matter if that means simply making wide the way for another to rule and to reign and to get all the credit and all the glory. I'm just here to serve. I'm here to make a path straight for the one who is coming after me. I'm not that one. I mean, let verse 1 of chapter 14 stick to you. Do you think Jonathan knew what Samuel had said to Saul? You know, your your dynasty is done. Yeah, I think he knew. I think he knew when this happened that that Saul was rejected by God. And, And Jonathan knew that there would be no Saul part two. There would be no Jonathan on Saul's throne. And he knew that God had sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord had commanded him to be prince over his people. And that prince was someone other than Jonathan. That that prince was David. And that prince David would be actually, as we see in the coming chapters, a direct threat to the line of Jonathan. But yet, how does Jonathan respond In this chapter, in this chapter, how does Jonathan respond? He keeps seeking the good and the welfare of the kingdom of Israel. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about what God wants and what God wills. And if I'm going to put myself in the way, I'm fine with being forgotten and being left. This is really amazing. When that man arrives, when David arrives, what do we see Jonathan do? In chapter 20, verse 13 and 16, we see he kneels. Jonathan kneels. Or 18. He kneels before the true king of this kingdom. And and Jonathan essentially says when he sees David take down the Philistine, Goliath, he basically takes off his armor and his robes and all of his glory and regalia and he gives it to David and he says, whom the Lord anoints, I will serve, I will obey. That is my king. I will worship God, not man. And we see in chapter 20, Saul scourges Jonathan with the most horrible words you could use to your own son. Words that your translation will not even translate for you. 
Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do you not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? He chooses to obey the Lord and he chooses the Lord's will over his own even though it leads to his own shame. This is a picture of what the gospel does in your heart. Isn't it? You choose what everyone else says will bring you shame. You kneel and obey another Lord who is not you. You seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and you trust that you'll have enough to get by. And you say to yourself, if my heavenly Father feeds birds and clothes flowers, I think He'll take care of me as His beloved child. But it's not about me. It's about Jesus and His glory. And Jonathan chose God's king over himself. And this is basic. This is the basic lesson of meekness. Basically, he didn't mind. He didn't matter. Oh, what was he about? He was not about what-if scenarios. What would have been if my dad wasn't such an idiot? He, he, he was not about talking or thinking about what he deserved He was not about his kingdom or his rule. No, he was about God's kingdom and God's rule. That is his mentality. Or I like to think of Jonathan's mentality this way. I don't need a crown. I don't need a palace. I don't need a nice comfortable bed or a throne or peacocks or chimpanzees, or gold everywhere. Just give me a sword to swing a little bit. Just give me a place in God's big, beautiful picture. I want to labor and work for God's kingdom with everything in me. And I want to I'm transitioning to you now. I want to, when my eyes blink shut for the last time and blink open into eternity to see Jesus coming towards me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You can have all of that. Give me Jesus. You can have all the world give me Jesus. That's what I want. I just want a sword to swing for a while and be told by Jesus, well done. Well done. Well done. Is that you? Is that in your heart? Could you be a nobody for a while? Could you be a foot washer? Or would you grow offended that God would waste such talents as you possess? Remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born 
of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, that yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the brave company we share with those who do great things under a big and sovereign God. They are bold, they are wise, and they are meek. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for this hour of worship and your word and this example we have that stirs us on to boldness and to meekness and to wisdom. I pray that you would use this word to work mightily in our hearts today. In your name, amen.